Well, so good to see everybody, and uh, so good to be with you on Father's Day. We've been in this series called Family Matters, and uh, so it just kind of goes right in. You know, we're not going to change course too much on Family Matters because, uh, of course, with it being Father's Day, it's no need to preach a special message on that because we're kind of right in the middle of a parenting series, and it's going to apply a lot to that. So we'll kind of just keep going in those in that direction. But I, I do want to mention this as we get started, that I've, of course, as we've been going through this series and then just years of talking to people uh, as, we, as we lead the church, you know, sometimes when you go through a series like this, people can get discouraged because it can kind of just point out all the things that you feel like you're doing wrong, you know, all the areas that you failed, especially if your kids are already grown and you don't have a chance to make any adjustments now. Um, But I want you to know that is not the position that I'm taking, okay? I don't want to be up here going like, man, you messed up on this and you did that. Look, I'm I'm raising uh, kids too. Uh, Of course, we're not supposed to say that, right? We're training adults. Remember, that's the new phrase. We're not raising kids. We're training adults. But we're in the middle of that too. And can we just all agree there are no perfect parents? Okay, we already know there's no perfect kids. That's a given. That's for sure. But... No perfect parents. Look, we're doing our best, okay? And anytime you're, you're given that level of sacrifice and that level of effort, of course you can grow weary. You could get tired. But every now and then we've got to kind of re-encourage ourselves, kind of pick ourselves back up and go, all right, I, I kind of relaxed and dropped the ball on this for a, a few months or maybe years even, and I need to pick it back up and pick the baton back up. And I think that's where a lot of people are. And I just want to encourage you, As we go through this series, probably you're going to hear some things that sound a little bit direct and a little bit blunt, and that's because because sometimes truth is that way, right? I mean, truth is so insensitive. It's why a lot of people don't want to hear the truth. Truth is so insensitive. Now, the people who communicate it can be sensitive or insensitive, but truth itself is just like a slap in the face. You know, that's why when you go and stand on the scale and you look down, there's no sugar with that. It's just... A number straight in your face, didn't prep you for anything, didn't say, now look, you've been doing really good, okay, I know this number's going to shock you a little bit. There's none of that. It just slaps you right in the face, and you go, you know what, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm done with you. This is, you are so insensitive. Uh, but truth is that way. Truth is just, it's, it's, it's offensive. Uh, age is like that. This is why these are numbers that people hide, hide their weight, hide their age, right? Because it's so insensitive. How old are you? I ain't telling you that. Now, me, I don't care because I'm still kind of young, you know, but uh, it was funny because my wife turned 40 before me. I'm going there again, yes. Uh, My wife turned 40 before me, and so she's two years older than me, so I was making a joke about her beating me there. Actually, I've been joking for two years straight. I've just loved it. Um, And I made a few comments in the sermon about it because I know she doesn't care. I, I know her, and she doesn't care. And so then she told me after the sermon one time, she said, hey, you're going to have to stop mentioning my age and service. There's women in church that are getting offended for me. I'm like, oh, well, tell them it's fine. It's no big deal. But there are certain things in our life like that, right? Can't change your age. Uh, you can change your weight, but it's still, it's just, it slaps you in the face, you know, when you look at the scale. And there's a lot of truth like that. And truth in general is so insensitive. And so our world right now, if you haven't noticed, our world does not like truth. I mean, fact. That our world does not like facts. They do not like truth. You know, very basic facts about biology, about God. <clears throat> they, people do not like absolute truth, and they don't like people that communicate absolute truth. And 
what they like to say is, well, that's your truth. In other words, that's true for you. Well, that's not, that's not really called truth. That's called like a preference or an opinion. But there are certain truths that it doesn't matter or care how you feel about it. But what I've noticed is we need that kind of truth in order to change. And sometimes when I'm helping someone as a pastor, I'm helping someone in our church or even outside of our church sometimes, I have found that the most effective, also painful though, but the most effective thing I can do is hit somebody with truth right between the eyes. And you do it as loving as you can, but a lot of times if you sugarcoat it, it doesn't quite have the effect that it needs to have. And sometimes the truth has to be hit right between the eyes because it kind of shakes you out of your deception It shakes you out of the cloak that you've soothed yourself with to make you feel good about a certain situation. And what we have these defense mechanisms because truth is so painful. You know, psychology will give us some of these defense mechanisms that people use. You'll be familiar with these. The first one is denial. So when a truth comes that we don't like, that we're uncomfortable with, uh, one of the places that people can go is to what they call denial, just where we just deny that that's not even true. We just pretend like that doesn't even exist. It's not there. We know it's there, but we never look at it. We never talk about it. We don't mention it. I've seen people do that with family members, like somebody wronged them one time, and then they just never mention their name again. They pretend like they don't even exist. But this is what we do sometimes with truth. Much more common than denial of course, we've all, met somebody, we've all met people who are in denial. But much more common than denial <clears throat> is something called rationalization. And what rationalization does, <clears throat> this is the psychological definition. It's when a person attempts to logically justify something that is illogical or unacceptable to them. They attempt to replace the truth with a flawed but seemingly plausible line of reasoning. Okay, so this is rationalization. There's the truth, but we don't like it. So instead, we're going to substitute that truth with something else that is a lot more palatable and a lot more maybe easier to receive. Here's an example of that. Here's the truth. Okay, this is our example. Here's the truth, the factual truth. You got fired because you were not dependable and can't show up on time. But we can't accept that. So the rationalization comes in. My boss doesn't like me. And everything is just so political around there. You ever heard that before? <laughs> Man, y'all got quiet all of a sudden. Some <laughs> bunch of y'all been fired or something? Huh? So the, the truth might be you got fired because of legitimate reasons and character flaws on your part. You got fired because you were told the same thing four, five, six times over and over. You weren't dependable, couldn't show up on time. They, fi- they finally got tired of fooling with you, so they fired you. But that we don't like that doesn't cast us in a good light. So we we instead of accepting that truth and letting that truth hurt and change us, we begin to rationalize. And we go, well, that ain't why I lost that job. I mean, yeah, they had to say a few things, but that ain't why. My boss never liked me. Day one, had it out for me. Maybe he had it out for you for a reason. My boss just had it out for me. And plus, things are so political around there. You know, you got to know somebody. You got to be, it's all family. It's blah, 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 on and on. And what does that do? It, it shields us from the truth that would change us. It shields us from the truth that would cause the blinders to fall up and us wake up and go, hey, if I don't want this to happen again, I need to make adjustments. 
And maybe people have been trying to tell me this for years on end. Maybe people have tried to point this out before, and I haven't been open to it. So these things have continued, continued, and I continue to see the collateral damage in my life year after year after year, decade after decade, over and over. Why? Because we shield ourselves from the truth. And we replace it with a truth that is way more palatable and way more acceptable. Now, you're going to see how this applies to, to parenting and family in just a minute. But I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And Paul dealt with this as well because Paul was trying to help people in the Corinthian church. He's trying to bring truth. And if you know the, the history of these two letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote a, he had to write a very harsh letter because there was a guy in the church that was causing a lot of problems. And Paul explained to the Corinthian church, he said, the way sin works is you have to cut it out. It's a disease. It's a cancer. You can't just let it sit in the church because, he said, it'll actually spread like yeast throughout the whole loaf. He said, so whenever there's sin or there's ever a problem, he said, you got to confront it. you got to deal with it. Now, it can be dealt with in multiple ways. You can pull somebody aside. You can deal with them privately. That's not what the sermon's about, so we're not going to get into that. But point is, Paul had to be very harsh with, in this instance, and he said, listen, y'all have let this go on too long. Here's what he was really telling them. You've been passive, and you've been negligent in dealing with this situation, and it's gone on far too long, and here are the steps you need to take. You need to, you need to, get, you need to get rid of this guy. You need to kick him out of the church, and it was, it was a harsh way that he said to deal with it, and it seemed very cut and dried, and it seemed very direct, and probably a lot of people had a problem with it. So now in 2 Corinthians, he's following up that letter. And he's writing to him. We're all the way in chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. And he addresses that, that first letter where he had to deal with that situation. It is what he said, verse 8. He said, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Now think about that. He said, I understand what my letter did to you. I understand what the truth did. He said, I know that it grieved you. I know that it upset you. I know that it offended you. He said, but I do not regret it. Look at this. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss. Through us, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a lot to unpack there, but this is basically what he said. He said, listen, I, I understand I offended you and I made you grieve when I brought truth and kind of hit you between the eyes. And he said, actually, I did feel bad about it at first. At first, when I saw how much it upset you and I saw y'all's response, I got all y'all's emails and texts and everything, phone calls like that. He said, it kind of upset me that I had grieved you to that degree. He said, I did regret it, but he said, now I do not because I look at it and I see the result of what came from it. And the result was, is that that truth followed by grieving led to you repenting. And what did repentance lead to? You see, this is a logical progression he's laid out here. Truth led to grieving, grieving led to repentance, and repentance led to not losing something in your life that was very valuable. In other words, if, 
if I'd not grieved you and you'd not repented, you would have continued down a track that would have destroyed the church and destroyed this man's life and destroyed your life. So I don't feel bad that I had to smack you between the eyes with truth because I look at the result. And how many of you know that is what good parents do? Nobody likes, this is why parents sometimes say it, you know, to discipline you, well, it hurts me more than it does you, and kids never understand that. And I know as a kid, I'm like, yeah, right. That, then let's switch places. How about that? Because, yeah. I, but as a parent, we know what that means, right? It's, it, we don't like to, we love our children so much, we don't like to see them upset, we don't like to see them cry, we don't like to see the pain. That, it, that discipline causes. I'm not just talking about spanking. I'm talking about any kind of discipline. We don't like to see what happens when you have to tell your kids some hard truth that they never heard or thought about before. I, I mean, some kids need to be told a lot of things that, that are not pleasant to tell them ple- about the way other kids are treating them or about the way the world is responding to them. Somebody who loves them has to sit them down. I don't know how many times I had to sit down with my kids and say, look, uh, I got to tell you something that, you, that you're not going to hear and I want to hear and I really don't want to have to be the one to tell you. But I love you enough to tell you. And so I don't want to hurt my kids' feelings. I don't want to grieve them. I don't want to hurt them. But this process is in my mind. That if I tell you and it causes legitimate change in your life, the very small amount of pain that you feel from me telling you this is going to help you avoid massive amounts of pain down the road. And that's what we're after. Spanking, discipline, correction, all of it is choosing the small pain now to avoid the big pain down the road. And I see, I see parents all the time that miss this, and then their kids get older, they get into marriage, they struggle in their marriage, many of them get divorced, many of them have character flaws, selfishness, issues that were never worked out that should have been worked out while they were children, and the pain and the devastation follows them into adulthood, and, it, and it's generational, it continues on and on and on, and where does it start? It starts with us as parents, and that's an enormous responsibility, but we have to have this perspective in mind, it is my job to train, and if I see a character flaw, a mindset in your life, a habit in your life that's not going to help you down the road, I have to deal with it. I can't turn my head and be passive. I can't be in denial and pretend like it's not there. I can't rationalize, and parents are very good at this. Some of y'all are going to get mad at me for this. Oh, well, they're tired. Okay. So what are you teaching? Well, when you're tired, it's okay to act like this. Instead of teaching, and I understand everything's age appropriate. You know, I understand that. There's a certain point. But there's a certain point where you have to be, a child has to be trained. Yeah, I know you're tired. We all get tired. And when you get tired, you have to still act this way. You can't, you can't resort to this or when you're hungry or on and on. Why? Because that's how adults have to do. And so they have to be trained into that. And let's not even get into the they will grow out of this mentality. Because if you missed that, go back and listen last week. We're not going to go there. But I love Paul's mentality. He says, I'm looking down the road. And he said... I love you enough to hurt your feelings. I love you enough to cause you discomfort. I love, I love you enough to tell you it cause you a little bit of pain right now. Because you know what? You're going to get over it. And it's going to save you from massive amounts of pain down the road that you can't see right now. This is why the Bible says, if a father does not discipline his son, then he actually hates him. This is why the Bible, because the Bible knows, the Bible understands this fact that delaying 
that, that not disciplining our kids is often more about us than it is them. We don't like the pain. We don't like the difficulty. We don't like the challenge. We don't want to fool with it. It's really not about them. It's about us. We don't like to see the pain of it. We don't like to, to deal with the big, and, and, I've, and I've seen that too. Man, if I deal with this, I know how they're going to act. They're going to blow up. Well, look, fight for them. Save their life. Fight for the, fight for the future. Yeah, it's going to be a battle sometimes, and you're going to have to fight that battle. Sometimes you're going to have to fight it daily, but you're fighting for their future. You're fighting for their life. And uh, again, if you missed last week, we talked a lot about that because we, we, we rationalize and we substitute truth, and we, we tell our things with, oh, well, they're, they're tired. Oh, they're hungry. Oh, this is just their personality. Oh, they'll grow out of it, all these things. And I'm, I'm just here to tell you they don't always grow out of it. They don't always grow out of it. Now, they'll change how they do it. But if a child learns to manipulate, throw fits, yell, anger, that will follow them into their marriage. Some of you are married to people that didn't grow out of it. Okay. (laughs) Some of you are no longer married to people that didn't grow out of it. Right? Okay. Right. Right? You go, well... Oh, this person was an angel. Yeah, well, they learned to hide, they le- and then it, all of a sudden it manifested. But you could always track it back to their childhood. And, and, if, and with good parenting and good training, a lot of that would have been worked out of them. Every time I see a dysfunction in my kids, this is like one of the number one questions I ask in my mind. I go, is that going to work in marriage? That pouting, is that going to work in marriage? That anger, is that going to work in marriage? Is that going to help them in marriage? That selfishness. Is that going to help them in marriage? And if not, I'm doing their future spouse a massive favor by working these things out in them. And my goal is to deliver to them, not a perfect spouse, but best as I can get. I don't want their spouse looking back at me and go, man, what did you do for 18 years? What did you do? I mean, I got to do everything. Look, my wife just gave up on a few things, thank God. You know, she said, well, your, your parents didn't teach you to do that. I'm not going to try to tackle it. They didn't win that war, so I'm not going to. Yeah, just give up on that one. Just. It's kind of funny sometimes when I talk as a, a pastor, I'll meet with, I do premarital counseling with couples or couples that are just, you know, in for, uh, been married for a year or two. And sometimes I'll hear funny things, you know, they'll come in and they'll go, Oh, it's just so aggravating. You know, they, they leave the toothpaste all over the counter and then they leave their socks on the floor. And I'm like, I'm just laughing. I'm thinking, I still do that. I mean, what you want me to do? I, you're fighting a losing battle. Do the best you can. I mean, you got to pick your battles. You give up on the socks and toothpaste. Let's pick something else that matters, you know. <laughs> so, so Paul, this mentality, he said, I'm going to grieve you, I'm going to hurt you, you know, now. I'm going to cause you pain now because I'm looking towards the future. Many of you are in a situation right now, you have a child that is at a crossroads. And they're going to, they're going to go one way or the other. The, these habits and patterns are going to be like concreted into their, into their character and become part of their identity and who they are. Or you still have a window you still have a window to change that, shape that, mold that into a, a proper character for God. And if you wait too long, if you deny it too long, if you procrastinate too long, if you, if you overlook it too long, you're going to find that this, is, this, is, this becomes part of them and it's much more difficult to get out the older and the longer that they go. 
I heard one uh, minister one time, his name was Miles Monroe. He's going on to be with the Lord, but he's a, a very wise, godly man. And he came to Oral Roberts University where I was uh, attending school. And he made this statement while he was there. He said, anything you do not conquer by the time you are 18 will be with you for the rest of your life. And I was like, whoa, I better get to work because I'm already a couple years <laughs> behind. And I don't know if that's completely true. I, I think people can change, but I think we all see the truth in it. I don't know if it's like 100% true in every case, but you can see that, that many times things that have been unconquered and undealt with, they will follow us for years and years and years to come. That's why we have such an important job as parents. Amen? Okay, so the, the, the issue with the denial and the rationalization is, and all of that is that in order to solve problems, we have to deal in truth. And so we must be ready to confront truth no matter how painful it is. It would do all of us well to get an outside perspective of our children. Because sometimes we get tunnel vision. And I actually had a conversation with someone this recently, someone that I trust very, very, very much, and you need to trust them very, very much. Someone that I trust very much, I said, hey, if you ever see anything in my kids that I'm not seeing, I said, I want you to let me know. Why? Because I know all of us can have blind spots. And plus, our kids can get really good at acting a certain way when they're around us, and then when they're not, they can show little signs, they can show little things that, that are very revealing that we don't know about that we don't see. So it, if, it, you can't be afraid of that. You can't be afraid of the truth of that, of asking someone else. Say, hey, if there's anything ever in my kids that maybe I'm not seeing that you might be seeing, let me know. I don't even have to agree with you, but I don't mind having that, that counsel and that advice into my life. There's a lot of value in that. To solve problems, you have to deal in truth. And sometimes as parents, we don't see our truth. We don't see the truth because we've blinded ourselves to it. We've blinded ourselves to the fact that our child may not be the perfect little angel. We've blinded ourselves to that. Some of you are like, I ain't blind to it. I know. Okay, yeah. But you might need a little more love, you know, for your kid. But no, sometimes we do blind ourselves to it because we continue to make excuses for it. But in order, here's the reality. In order to solve a problem, you have to deal in truth. I encounter this all the time in my, when I meet with people. Meeting with somebody, you know, maybe an individual or a couple, we're talking. And I can tell they're presenting the best version of the situation, the best version of themselves. You know, it's been, it's, it's you know, what she said this and I said it like that. I'm like, that's how you said that? If you said it like that, you wouldn't be sitting in here right now. They present the best side, you know, and so many times, I, so many times, I have to stop the meeting at about five minutes in and say, look, we have to deal in reality here. If we're just going to sit here and you're going to present the best version, and you're not going to be transparent, and you're not going to lay out all of your flaws and all of your problems and all of your issues, we are completely wasting time here. Why? Because you can't solve a problem unless you're dealing with the truth. I mean, I can't. It's like if you went to your doctor and you're having massive hip pain and you can barely walk. And this is why wives go to the doctor with their husbands, by the way. But you go, you go to the doctor, you're having massive hip pain. He's like, hey, how's your hip? And you're like, eh, it's, it's not bad. I mean, it's a little, little discomfort. And your wife is like, no, you can't barely get out of bed in the morning. What's wrong with you? It's not going to do any good if on the form they're like, do you smoke? And you do. And you're like, no. 
And then, you know, you drink, and they're like, do you, you drink? And you're like, no. And then your wife's like, what? What's wrong with you? And you're hiding all these things and all these problems. You can't hide it from your doctor. you got to tell your doctor. Why? Because otherwise you're going to get a misdiagnosis. You're going to get mistreatment. You're going to be taking some medication that you don't need. It's actually going to do more harm. You have to be 100% transparent and honest. And sometimes, I know when I deal with people here, I have to stop and tell them that. I have to say, hey, quit, quit presenting yourself in the best light possible. Just lay out all the dirty laundry, and then we can, we can deal with it, and we can go from there. And so for families, okay, for families, if you're really trying to improve your family, if you're really trying to solve problems with your kids, if you're really trying to move forward, you have to start with truth. You have to assess the situation accurately. Does your child really have, you know, these ADD and these problems? Or do they just, have they just not been disciplined? You know, do they really have these issues? Or are we just not training the way that we should? It's possible that they do, but not in every case. And I would say this about ADD, just, to, just in case I hadn't already offended you. I would just make sure. But I'll say this about ADD. You can't know. I don't care what anyone says. You cannot know whether your child has ADD until you have applied the principles of discipline from the scripture first. If you have, if you say, well, this child is this way, well, you don't know if applying discipline from the scriptural way would fix that and deal with that until you've done that first. Now, if you apply the disciplines of scripture and you apply the way the Bible says to do it and you still have some aid, okay, now then maybe it is. But we just jump to that so quick and we never even, many times, never even tried to apply what the Bible said would work. Man, I didn't get one amen on that. Well, that's all right. I think I saw a couple nods. I'll take that. That'll be all right. Okay, let's keep going here. We don't want to get bogged down on, on that. So, again, if we're going to solve problems in, in our families, we have to deal in truth. We cannot deny. We cannot rationalize. We've got to let the truth just slap us right between the eyes. Our natural tendency as parents is to defend and rationalize our children's behavior. Why? Because of this hard truth right here. Our children are a reflection of us. This is, this is I think, probably the number one reason why we rationalize as parents and we explain away the bad behavior is because we know that actually our children are a reflection of us. Or at the very least, they are a reflection of our leadership. They are a reflection of our leadership. I know this from the scripture, 1 Timothy 3, 4. The, when Paul is explaining to Timothy how to choose leaders for the church, he goes through some criteria. Now keep in mind, the church is... God's most prized possession. It is literally the bride of Christ. It is his wife. He paid for it with his own blood. There's nothing more precious to God than the body of Christ, than the church. So when he's selecting people to lead the church, the standards are the highest. He's saying, if you're going to, if he's telling Paul and Paul's telling Timothy, if you're going to select somebody to manage and steward the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, they have to have the highest, the highest level of standards going to be applied to them. And when you go through the whole New Testament, 
uh, there's three different passages that explain this, and there's actually 51 qualities that are mentioned, 51 unique qualities that are mentioned to, to, and, and, and to be qualified in order to lead the church. And just to set y'all all at ease, I have all 51 qualities. I've met every one, so y'all don't have to worry about that. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so my mama was clapping. What about, come on. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm kidding. But there's 51 qualities that he says, you know, you should kind of look at and see if they're in a person's life. Out of those 51, some of them can be lumped into the same category because they kind of cover the same thing. And after you lump them into different categories, do you know the number one thing that, that is mentioned? Num- number one, head and shoulders above everything else, is this. He must manage and lead his household well. Ahead of faith, ahead of holiness, ahead of of skill and ability, ahead of integrity, all of that. Those are all important and mentioned. But ahead of all of that is he must manage his own household well. This is the number one criteria for how God determines if someone is qualified for leadership in his kingdom. This is 1 Timothy 3.4. He mentions this in, in this verse. He says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Well, this is why I say that our children are a reflection of us, or at least they're a reflection of our leadership. The Bible just told us that, and it said it so plainly. If someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, if he can't lead well in his family, why would we think that he could lead well in the church of God? So we know this that our children's behavior is a reflection of us, who we are, things that we've ignored in our own lives, but it's also a reflection of our leadership. It's, it's a reflection of our ability to be able to solve real problems in what we've been given stewardship over. You know, if, if I'm leading a family and my my wife is depressed, and she's sad, and she's be down, and my, my kids walk around with their head down, and one of them's on the floor throwing his fit, and we've got all these problems going on. That is a reflection of my leadership, no matter how you slice it. And, and I, I, I look at it the way, I look at it like a family is a garden that has to be tended. You know, if you look at a flower garden and a vegetable garden, and you've got this nice, beautifully landscaped garden, if you go out every day, you prune a little bit, you pull some, pull some weeds here and there. You turn the water on. It's not going to be hard to keep on top of it. But especially in Louisiana, you ignore it for a couple weeks. You ignore it for a couple months. You, you be negligent or, uh, and don't do your duties for a few weeks and months. How many know you're going to walk out there and you are going to feel overwhelmed and your first thought is going to be, let's just burn the thing to the ground and start over. Because there's weeds everywhere. <laughs> Everything's overgrown. It's just like, I, I don't even know where to begin. But if you stay on top of it, and you, you do a little snip here, and you pull here, and you fertilize here, and you stay on top of it, it'll stay healthy and beautiful. And uh, families are that way. You know, if you let something go and go and go and go, it's going to get to the point that it just feels totally out of hand, and, and you don't even know how to deal with it or where to start. So w- what I, I think a better approach is, and this is why I don't agree with Parents waiting, waiting, they constantly wait, 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 wait. Well, they'll get older. Oh, they'll grow out of, oh, they're not old enough yet. Oh, well, they'll be more mature. I don't agree with that. I think that training and discipline starts from day one. 
Now, it's, it's, it's appropriate per, for the age, but training is not always spanking, right? Sometimes training is just looking at a child in the eyes and saying, no. And them looking at you like, huh? Did you just tell me no? Yes, I did. And I will win. Sometimes training, it just begins from day one in, in little things. And here's, the, here's one of the principles that, that I like to follow when it comes to training. You apply the least amount of pressure needed to get the job done. And if that pressure doesn't work, then it picks up a little bit. But, but ideally, I want, you to, I want you to respond to the least amount of pressure. I told you last week we have horses at home. This is the principle you follow with a, with a horse. You have a bit in their mouth. You don't want your horse to only respond when you're jerking on the reins. Otherwise, that's going to be your whole ride. You're fighting this, pulling here, fighting here. If I don't need to pull, if I don't need the spurs, if I don't need the switch, I'd rather not have it because it's a lot more pleasant to just do this. And if he responds to that, that's all he ever needs. So you want to apply the lightest amount of pressure needed to get the job done. And that's going to be different for every kid. I mean, I know I had one that barely needed anything. I, I joked last week and said, I think I got one that probably had five spankings their whole life. I mean, just, I mean, they're not done, but you know, they're kind of past that age. But the other one, five, five a day. That, that was normal. That was just part of it. So no, every kid is different. And I will apply the, the least amount of pressure. You're almost going to be the one to determine. If you respond to this, your life is going to be easy. If not, I have to, I have to ratchet it up. Now, you think, might be thinking, well, that's just, okay, young kids. We're talking about spanking and all that. No, no, no. That, that's teenagers. That's in all of it. I want you to respond to the lightest amount of pressure possible because I don't want to just be with a heavy hand all the time. But our children are a reflection of us, and they are a reflection of our leadership. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. Verse 12, we see this principle again in the Old Testament. Eli, the priest, was a very godly man in a lot of ways. God chose him to, uh, to raise up Samuel as a, as a prophet. Samuel went and lived with Eli. And so you get the book of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Samuel is one of the greatest prophets uh, you know, to, ever, to ever be in the Old Testament. But Eli had a problem with managing his family. And this is what eventually disqualified him from the ministry. Now, if you look at his life, he was a very good person in a lot of ways. And this is, always, this is almost always the case with parents. You know, Eli was a godly man. He respected God. He respected the word of God. He was, he was trustworthy in a lot of ways. But he had one problem. His sons were immoral. And they were working in the temple and he wouldn't deal with it. And he even talked to them about it a few times, but they wouldn't change. And so he never dealt with it. He never did anything about it. And it eventually, in God's eyes, it disqualified him from leadership. In 1 Samuel 2, 12, it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now at this point, the Bible doesn't even blame Eli for that. We don't really know exactly where the Bible falls on that as far as Eli's sons. We don't know exactly why they were worthless men. We don't know why they didn't know the Lord. But we're not told necessarily that that is Samuel's fault at that point. But what 
but what we are dealing with here is that he let that go on and he let that continue and he didn't deal with it and that became his problem. Not the fact that they were this way. You may have a child, you may have a kid that you don't know why they're so difficult to deal with. That might not be your fault. I mean, again, we have personalities, we have differences, there are legitimate disorders, there's all kind of stuff like that. Why you have a child that is a certain way may not be your, your fault. But what is your responsibility is how you deal with it and how you manage it and how you lead it. And that's, where, that's, how, that's the position that God took here. So the sons of Eli were worthless men, it says, verse 12, they did not know the Lord. It goes on to explain it. Basically, it was two things. They were sexually immoral, and they disrespected the offerings that the people brought. They disrespected the Lord. They disrespected the people, and they disrespected the offer. They just totally ignored God's law, and basically they did how they wanted to do it. And so verse 29, God confronts Eli about it. He says, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now declares the Lord, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. So God held Eli responsible for not dealing with his sons. Not necessarily for how they, they were and their personalities and their temperament to, to reject God, but just the fact that you didn't deal with it, you didn't confront it, and you, you left them in place when you should have dealt with it. So what does this tell us? And of how God sees it. What is the moral of the story? Well, this is one of my favorite leadership quotes. I quote it to myself all the time. I quote it to others all the time because it's such an uh, insightful quote and it, it really is the moral of this story. And it is this, if a leader sees a problem and ignores the problem, then the leader is now the problem. If a leader sees a problem and ignores the problem, then the problem is no longer the problem. Now, the real problem is the leader. Because problems are problems, and problems are going to be everywhere, and with the right leader, those problems can be solved. The problem is usually never the problem. The problem is whoever's in charge of the problem. So, let's apply that to parenting. Let's, let's change out the word leader. If a parent sees a problem and ignores the problem, then the parent is now the problem. See, if you see a problem in your family, and you go, well, my kids are this way, and my kids are that, and they won't just do it, and they, they're not the problem. I know that's hard. And I know a lot of people don't want to hear that, and they don't want to think about that. They're not the problem. We are the problem. And that's how God sees it. One of, my things that, one of the things that always stuck out to me I, uh, we used to watch a couple, you know, we watched a couple seasons of uh, Dog Whisper. Y'all remember that show? What's the guy's name? Y'all remember his name? Caesar. There we go. Caesar, he, you know, Caesar Milan, the Dog Whisperer. And I love one of the quotes. I was watching it one day. One of the things he said, I wrote it down immediately. It was like, oh my gosh, I am putting that in my sermon. That is so good. They asked, somebody asked him, they said, what is the worst dog case you ever encountered like they were looking for some awesome story you know tell us the worst dog you ever had 
And he said, the worst dog case I ever had, he said, uh, I never encountered that. He said, I actually never encountered that. He said, the dog is easy. He said, it's the owner. That's the problem. In other words, if I was going to tell you, and he went on to explain it, if I was going to tell you the worst case I ever encountered, I would tell you about the owner, not the dog. Isn't that something? But we know this. See, that's what I'm trying to say. We know this is true. But we don't want to admit it and we don't want to acknowledge it, it's, which is why we deflect, which is why we deny, which is why we rationalize. We know that our children are a reflection of us, but that's almost too painful to accept sometimes. Unless they're doing really well, then we just take all the credit. Oh, that's all me. All me. Look at them. Straight A's. I did all that. Yeah. Yeah, we don't mind that. But on the other end, and again, let me please, I, I want to emphasize here, I understand every child is not the same. You may have, luck of the draw, (laughs) you may have got one, and you're like, why, God? Why me? Why did you give me this one to train? Well, all I can tell you is God knows what he's doing, and if he gave you that one, he must have thought you had what it takes to deal with them. He must have thought that you had the ability to train and do it and follow it, or else he wouldn't have given them to you. I don't think he makes any mistakes. So, no, you can, you can do it. We can do it. But we have to take this mentality. If a leader sees a problem and ignores the problem, then the leader is now the problem. If you see a problem in your family and you're responsible for it and you're going day after day, week after week, month after month, and you're ignoring it and you're not dealing with it and you know it's there and you see it and you go, like, stick your head in the sand and you're like, oh, we'll deal with that one later. Listen, the problem's not the problem. You are the problem. And the, the sooner that we start to think like that, the quicker we can actually do something about it. In a way, this is very empowering. In a way, it's very empowering to realize, wait, you're telling me this problem that's going on can be solved? Oh, yeah, you get the right amount of grit. You get the right people involved. You, you seek the Lord enough. You get the right counsel. You read the right book. You start listening to the right podcast. Yeah, it may be work, but yes, you can change that situation. I promise you, you can change it. You know why? Because if not, then the Bible's a lie because the Bible said that for with God, nothing will be impossible. So, no, every situation, every one. This is how you ought to start telling yourself because some of us have bought lies. This is how you ought to start telling yourself. I don't know the answer for this right now, but I serve a God who does. And I have the Holy Spirit in me. My Bible is filled with wisdom that I need. And so, yeah, I can tackle this. I don't know how, but I'm not sticking my head in the sand anymore, and I will do whatever it takes to get the victory in this, in this situation. But sometimes we're so tired and we're so weary that we almost feel like we don't even have the energy. I meet parents all the time that themselves are burdened down with anxiety, stress, depression. So the idea of challenging a difficult situation in their family, they're just like, I don't even have the energy. I'm just going to hope and pray They get older, move out, and everything works itself out. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't always work. So we have to, as parents, we got to pull ourselves up by the boots. we got to go, okay, this is my job. This is my responsibility. For for some of us, like in my case, my oldest child is 14. So if I look at to to, to get to 18, four more years, I think in terms like that, all right, i got four more years to work, put it in, invest everything I can, and then when you're out now, it's on you. But I'm going to do my part. I'm not going to be negligent. I'm going to do everything I can to put it in you and fight for you so that you're equipped when you hit 
when you hit this world. So, last thing I want to give you this morning, I want to give you five things. We're going to go through them quick. I want to give you five things, uh, what you should do if you need to tackle a big problem in your family. All right, I encourage you to write these down because none of our memories are that good. But honestly, these are mostly things that we know. We know it. But just a little, little strategy for you. If you need to tackle a big problem in your family, okay, you, you see it, you know it's there, could be in your marriage, could be in you, could be in your kids. If you need to tackle a big problem, number one is you need to count the cost. You need to count the cost and ask yourself, what is this going to cost me? Because here's what I have found out. If we don't acknowledge up front, sometimes to change big things, we can't just go on with our life as normal. Sometimes in order to really change something, we've got to give up or sacrifice other things in order to do this. I have seen parents that were working two jobs, bringing in the money, good family, good kids, everything. One of the kids started going haywire, and one of them said, you know what? It's more important to save their life than it is to stay at this level of income. I'm going to take off from my job, maybe work part-time, and I'm going to, and I'm going to give my, a season of my life to this child. How many know that's one of the most godly things you can do? But I hear it all the time. I go, oh, well, we can't do that. We don't have the time for that. I work, he works. Well, change. Change your situation. Change your situation. You know, it's not a given. It's not a given that we have to live at this standard of income if it means our children are going off the deep end. I mean, I hear excuse after excuse. We've all heard it. But sometimes you've got to sit down and count the cost and go, this may be very costly, but you know what? You're worth it. And I'd rather have a child that loves God, follows God, is going after God than I would to be at this standard of living and this income. I mean, I, I would do whatever I had to do to save my child's life. But sometimes we don't think in those terms. You know, if your kid was falling off a cliff and you had him by one hand, you know, I'll do whatever I got to do to save him. Yeah, but it doesn't normally go like that. It's slow. It's slow. You, it's not that dramatic. They're falling off a cliff and you got to save them. No, it's, it's slow and they're drifting. And it takes somebody that can see to go, I see you're going the wrong direction, and I'm about to upend my life if I have to to fight for you. Even sometimes if you would just say, for the next year, for the next year I'm going to do this in order for you, and I'm going to invest my life into you until you get back on the right track. Or would you rather have two cars in the big house and the RV? And the, I mean, is that more important than the kid? I, it's not to me. So sometimes, yeah, it's dramatic. Look, I understand a lot of people don't want to do this. I understand it. And I don't care if you don't do it. I'm not telling you this is the only way. There are a lot of kids that their whole life would be changed if one parent would stop working and would bring that child home and homeschool them. I'm not saying that's the answer in every case. But we can't throw it out the window, too, like it's not an option because their, their time at school and influences that they're around are pulling them the wrong way. And what they need is somebody to pull them and be with them and invest in them. And they need to be taken out of their environment. That is a legitimate, that should be a legitimate option on the table. But I almost never, I almost never hear it. And, it, and my goodness, if you mention it, kind of like y'all doing me right now. If you mention it, people look at you like, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I know. I know you being with your own kids. I know it's the wildest thing. It's just a, it's crazy. But, but look, 
when I look at solving a problem, nothing's off the table. Nothing's off the table. I don't have things in my life like, oh, I couldn't give that up now. I would give up anything that I had to if it meant saving my child's life, especially if we're talking about keeping them out of hell. Especially if we're talking about keeping them out of hell, what would I not give up? What would I not sacrifice in order to save your life? So, yeah, you got to count the cost because sometimes what you need to do is not just a little, oh, just something convenient and comfortable. Sometimes what you need to do to really fix the situation is dramatic and painful and going to be very difficult and costly to you. So first thing, if you're going to solve any big problem, first thing you have to do is sit down and count the cost. And if you're not willing to pay the cost, then you might as well give it up right there because none of these other steps are going to work. Sometimes you have to be willing to count the cost and go, this is going to be costly, but you're more valuable to me than this, and I'm going to do whatever it takes. What is this going to cost? What might I have to prune, cut out of my life to really devote myself to this? Who will I have to fight, make mad, upset? And this is a big question. This is the biggest question of counting the cost. How far am I willing to go? How far am I willing to go? Because I meet a lot of people, they're not willing to go far enough to save their child's life and, and make, a, make a difference. Number two, after you've counted the cost, get on the same page. If you have two godly people that are married, they're both following God, they both have a prayer life. They both read the Word of God. They both come to church together. Let me tell you, you are just about invincible. If you have two people that are on the same page, locking arms, the man is in his role, the wife is in her role, they're submitted to God first, they both have a prayer life, they both are seeking God. Let me just tell you, that's rare, number one. And number two, you are just about invincible. You could do just about anything. You could solve just about any problem if you have that. So getting on the same page with each other, because sometimes parents have different uh, viewpoints and different beliefs about how to train, how to discipline. It's very normal that one person would lean more towards, you know, having a heavier hand, and the other person would be more merciful, more, more gracious. And as long as each person respects each other, and doesn't think, well, my way is the only way, and you understand that actually, no, there's value in your way, and there's value in my way, and there's going to be times that your way is best, and there's going to be times that my way is best. As long as you understand that, those two ways will work very well together. If we're going to just kind of stereotype a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of the times, the, the woman tends to be more gracious, more kind, more nurturing, and the man can tend to be more uh, aggressive and, and have a little bit of a heavier hand. Well, I think God knew what he was doing when he designed that. I mean, I think God can be both, right? God, you see, you see God in mercy, and you see God in grace, and then you see God in judgment, and you see him bringing a hammer, and you see him bringing discipline. It needs, children need both. And where I see the problem come in is if parents are not on the same page with that. In other words, if I'm the, more, if I'm the one who's more nurturing and more grace and more mercy... And I see my spouse bringing the hammer down. I've got to respect and trust them that, you know what, this might be what, it, what was needed in the situation. And we have to respect each other. And I'm not going to constantly intervene when you're trying to do it your way. And you're not going to constantly intervene when I'm trying to do it my way. No, because they need both. 
And usually we can come to some sort of happy median where there's, there's both at work. And I know in my relationship, my wife comes to me, I come to her, and each of us will give advice and counsel to each other and say, hey, you know, you need to lay off a little bit on this. I think you're hitting this too hard. They're going through this. You don't, you don't know about this. And we'll talk and we get on the same page. Or sometimes the other one may come, I'll, I admit it's me, uh, may come and say, hey, you're being too soft on this. You let, you're letting this go, and if you keep letting this go, it's going to go here. We need to get on the same page about this. And we do. We get on the same page. So number one, count the cost. Number two, get on the same page because you will need unity. You will need unity to tackle big problems. Take time to communicate. Work through differences. Calmly explain yourself and how you think. I'm talking about husband and wife. Because listen, if you can't do this. If you can't sit down and calmly communicate without fighting, without arguing, without being combative, then again, your child's not the problem. You are. We can't solve a problem because as a married couple, we can't sit down and talk about this. We can't sit down and communicate and get on the same page without arguing or fighting or getting mad or, or yelling. Well, then the kids are not the problem. We are. So you got to first solve that. So you have to be able to get on the same page. Take time to communicate. Work through differences. Calmly explain yourself. Important point on this one. You may need a mediator to do that. One of the most valuable things I do as a pastor is get married couples in my office and I just sit as a mediator and let them talk about things that they've been needing to talk about but could not talk about without having someone else in the room. And I usually ask them, after they've talked and they've explained calmly and this one has talked and they've refrained from yelling and arguing and, and they've just been able to calmly explain everything to one another, I say, are y'all able to talk like this at home? And a lot of times they laugh. <laughs> no. Having someone else in the room made all the difference. Just having someone you respect, having a, a pastor, a counselor, someone else in the room, even if I didn't give a lot of advice, just being there to mediate so that people could talk calmly and explain one another. And so many times people leave the office and they feel understood, they feel hurt because they have dysfunction in their marriage and they could never do that at home. But that's okay. If that's where you're at, get a mediator. Go see a counselor. Come see me. Sit down and go, we need to talk about this problem. We need to get on the same page. And we just, we just wanted an outside perspective, you know, to, to be part of it. That's okay. That's fine. You know, you don't have to go see a counselor uh, or get a mediator involved when everything's just, the wheels are falling off, you know, and everything's about to explode. It's okay, even for healthy marriages, to go see a counselor. Get somebody else in an area that you need help. There's not a problem with that. But whatever it takes, you have to get on the same page. After you've counted the cost... And you got on the same page, then you need to make a plan. What needs to change specifically? What needs to change? How are we going to change it? What will we no longer tolerate? Every, this is the plan. Every time this happens, we will respond this way. Every time they do this, say this, act this way, as a team, we're agreeing, this is what we will do. This is the plan. We will no longer tolerate this. This is how we will act. Number four, communicate to all involved. In other words, after you're on the same page and you have a plan, you sit down with your kids and you let them know, 
hey, we've made some mistakes in this area. We've let this go on too long. We're, and, and I want to em- emphasize this. Assume that they will be on board. They may not be. But assume the best and expect them to respond well. Sit down and communicate and say, listen, we've made some mistakes. We've tolerated this. We've let you do this. You're a good kid. God has good things for your life. But we have made some mistakes in letting this go on too long. And I want you to understand from this day forward, it has to change. And here's how we're going to do it. When you do this, this is what we will be doing. When you respond this way, this is how we will handle it. Communicate to the kids. Communicate to your spouse. Communicate to the grandparents if necessary. Communicate to anyone who needs to know this is the change we're making and this is how we're doing it. Now, the worst thing you can do is communicate all the changes that are coming and not follow through. Because they're only going to believe you on that about once, maybe twice. If you, if you have a habit of sitting everybody down and going, okay, from this day forward, everything's changing. And you lay down the law. And that happens about once a month. You're like, okay, yeah, right. Just let them blow off some steam. They'll be fine. They'll forget about it in three weeks, and we're all going to go back to normal. It'll be fine. If you sit down and have that conversation, you need to mean it. That's why you got to have gone through all these other steps. Count the cost. Get on the same page. Make a plan. Then communicate to all involved. This is how it's going. And then follow through. And number five, fight until you win. Fight until you win. No matter what, fight until you win. Don't don't have any excuses. Oh, well, it was hard. They didn't respond immediately. Listen, fight until you win. God is with you. You can do this. And let me me leave you with this last example to help you understand how this works. This this room in here, there's, there's four air conditioner units in this room. And during the week, we don't have them on. And so sometimes I will walk in this room and it's about 90 degrees in here. Well, actually, we, a lot of times we set it to like 85. But you walk in and it's very hot. Very, very hot. And it takes a while to cool it down. If I walk to, one of the, if I walk to these thermostats and, I, and I, change, I make the change and the adjustment that I need to make, how many of you know that there is absolutely no change in this room immediately? And there's really nothing I can do to speed up the process. I made the change... And now what do I have to do? I got to just wait. And sometimes you make the change in your family. You make the change and then you don't see an immediate result and people get frustrated. They go, well, I mean, I did, I did what you said. We made the change. We're doing everything you said. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a thermostat. You made the change, but now you got to wait for the effect to happen. It takes time. The temperature will cool down. And one day, in, in the case of the room... In several hours, you'll walk in and you'll look around and you go, huh, feels pretty nice in here. Feels pretty good in here. I guess those changes I made on that little box made a difference. That's how it is in your family. You, you make these changes. Sometimes you will see immediate difference, but a lot of times you change the input. Now you just have to be consistent. You got to say, you got to know I did the right thing. And now I'm going to just wait for those, those changes and that consistency to produce an effect. But you don't always see it immediately. Sometimes you got to wait for that, that temperature to change. Amen. Let's stand on our feet this morning.